0: Reflections on Dante's Divine Comedy, The Inferno, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, part one. The poet Leonard Cohen wrote, when things got bad, I didn't kill myself. I didn't turn to drugs or teaching. I tried to write. I tried to write what might be read on nights like this by ones like me and Dante had a hard life <clears throat> and he encountered in the uh, difficulties of that life uh, a night n i g h t a night like this and uh the night he discovered was really universal one. Uh, so when Leonard Cohen says, a night's like this, Dante's night like this was a night that's, uh, if not known, certainly there to be known by everybody. What John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. And, uh, when Dante wrote for ones like me, he wrote really for us all. Anybody who comes to that, to that pass. Uh, I have, uh, I, I hope to, as we go through the Inferno and the rest of Divine Comedy, to uh, I've, I've often felt that it's better to interpret a dream with another dream than it is to interpret it with a, too much analysis. Now we will, of course, be bringing analysis to, the, to this poem. This poem, by the way, can stand up under some pretty heavy analysis. Uh, you have to be you, you have to be uh, more analytical than anybody's ever been yet to uh, completely destroy this poem but uh, sometimes I think to respond to a dream with a dream is a better way of interpreting it and so I've I'm going to be bringing some poetry to respond to the poetry so that we set off uh, sort of echo structures rather than uh, just come out with flat-footed declarations about its its uh, meaning so I want to start with a couple of Uh, poems or passages from poems. Theodore Lefke had some dark nights of his own, a very troubled man, uh, and he wrote a poem called In a Dark Time. In a dark time the eyes begin to see. I meet my shadow in the deepening shade. I hear my echo in the echoing wood, a lord of nature weeping to a tree. I live between the heron and the wren, Beasts of the hill and serpents of the den. What's madness but nobility of soul at odds with circumstance? The day's on fire. I know the purity of pure desire. My shadow pinned against a sweating wall. That place among the rocks. Is it a cave or winding path? The edge is what I have. Dark, dark my light And darker my desire My soul, like some heat-maddened summer fly Keeps buzzing at the sill Which I is I? So this buzzing around the threshold, buzzing at the sill to another world is what I think is taunting Rethke in that poem. And then... Apropos maybe of something else in these first two cantos of the the, uh, Inferno, I'm going to read a little passage, a few stanzas from uh, Wordsworth's Resolution Independence uh, on the question of uh, is he a shade or a man? You know, when Dante meets Virgil, for his first remark, he sees this figure and he doesn't know if it's a shade, meaning a departed spirit returned, or a man. And often I sense of dante is likewise uh, this poem has two dantes um, the man who wrote it he's the poet and the fictional character who is the pilgrim whose name is dante and they have striking correspondences with one another one of the things that interests us about the poem is that these two dantes uh, overlap a great deal they are not the same dante and sometimes we look at dante and we say is Is this a shade or a man? Uh, Anyway, Wordsworth uh, in this poem happens upon an old uh, leech gatherer. And uh, here's what he writes. The old man still stood talking by my side, but now his voice to me was like a stream. Scarce heard, nor word from word could I divide. And the whole body of the man did seem like one whom I had met with in a dream or like a man from some far region sent to give me human strength by apt admonishment. My former thoughts returned, the fear that kills and hope that that is unwilling to be fed, cold pain and labor and all fleshly ills and mighty poets in their misery dead perplexed and longing to be comforted, my question eagerly did I renew. How is it that you live, and what is it you do? He with a smile did then his words repeat, and said that gathering leeches far and wide he traveled, stirring thus about his feet the waters of the pools where they abide. Once I could meet with them on every side, but they have dwindled long by slow decay. Yet still I persevere and find them where I may. So some haunting creature from another realm doing strange things that seem antiquarian and out of date and um, extinct. Uh, but somehow Wordsworth finds him to be uh, intensely relevant to the question that's on his mind. So we might approach Dante with that same sense of awkward sense of his distance from us and the peculiar differences uh, between Dante and us uh, and still in all be haunted by this strange work of his and wonder how it relates to us, if it relates at all to us. So Rome fell in 476 and in 1492, Columbus discovered the Western Hemisphere. Somewhere in between those two dates is a very complex and uh, a spiritually uh, turbulent historical epoch which we call the Middle Ages. Uh, lots of people narrow it down a lot more than those two dates do, but somewhere in there is something called the Medieval Age. The central institution of the medieval age was the church. The central myth was the Christian myth. We're talking about Europe, by the way. I don't... Uh, It's arguable that the central artistic form was the cathedral. Henry Osborne Taylor wrote a two-volume, the classical study of the medieval age, entitled The Medieval Mind. And in his last chapter, um, He he entitles his last chapter The Medieval Synthesis, and he subtitles his last chapter Dante. And in it, he makes the point that Dante summed it all up. He says, at last comes Dante to possess the whole, to think it, feel it, visualize its sum, and to make of it a poem. Now, this is another era than the one we live in, but it was an enormously rich and complex uh, age. And to sum it up, to sum up an age like that in a poem is itself a masterful and wonderful thing, uh, regardless of the inherent qualities of the age. Uh, but as, as I hope we'll come to see, this age has some things, surprisingly, to say to us even though we no longer live in it. So the poem that Taylor's talking about is the Divine Comedy. The summation and supreme extre- expression of this of this complex age. And what is it about? Well, it's about 13,000 lines long for one thing. It's about hell and purgatory and paradise. These are these are items in the uh, in the uh, mythological uh, uh view of things which hardly uh, hardly compel us at all anymore they've kind of dropped out of sight which in a way makes it better easier to go back to dante uh, these terms don't have quite the spin on them that they may have had uh, uh, some time ago but in any case uh, what is the poem about well the poem i think is about conversion <clears throat> Not conversion from this creed to that creed uh, or from this religion or church to that one, but conversion in the sense of a fundamental reorientation of the personality and a detailed, the most detailed, I think, the most detailed examination of the process uh, that we have, certainly the most detailed examination process that we have in secular literature. Um, a uh, a reordering of consciousness. So this poem has become one of our... Um, uh, I think we have at least unofficially canonized this poem, or if we haven't, we should have. Uh, it is part of our cultural incorporating documents. This is the year we're going to have a lot of hoopla about the American Constitution, and we ought to. It is our... It's our central incorporating document as a as a political people. Uh, but there are far more important ones. Uh, I have great reverence for that one, by the way. But there are far more important ones uh, that relate to deeper questions, more personal questions. And I think Dante needs to be included in that, that we have these cultural incorporating documents to which we can return uh, not to get the literal... Um, facts. That is to say, we return to these incorporating documents not as fundamentalists. but I don't mean to disparage anybody's uh, approach to sacred scripture here, but uh, uh, we return to them in order to uh, re-examine who we are. David Tracy, a theologian at the University of Chicago, wrote a book called The Analogical Imagination, and he he muses about what he calls the classics. He's using the term differently than we usually use it in a generic sense. The classics are these documents that uh, have uh, several peculiarities. One is that uh, they are either um, inexhaustible or at least we haven't exhausted them yet. That That no final interpretation seems possible they seem to always beckon to invite another interpretive effort, a deeper probe into their possible meaning. And secondly, uh, as one sets about the work of interpreting them, somewhere along the line, one discovers that this document is interpreting me instead of just me interpreting it. So they serve us to uh, help us take a look at ourselves. I want to repeat something here because we're starting out a new session and because I've made a modest living by repeating everything that's worth repeating. (laughs) So I want to repeat this one over again. Um, uh, It has to do with this, this word, the root word for tradition, which is traditio. It's the root word for both tradition and treason. And I think the etymological implication is that when we have a part of our inheritance... Culturally, uh, in order, in order to pass it on appropriately to those that will come after us, it has to change us. It has to, it has to have impacted us. Uh, it has to pass through the heart and mind and soul of its purveyors. And if it does not, if we simply purvey it out of some quaint idea that it would be good for the next generation to be subjected to it, they will appropriately throw it out and that would be a terrible thing for them to do so there must be some at least in each generation that subject themselves to these to these treasures and uh and allow themselves to be altered by them uh and then when we pass it on it's not treason but real tradition a living tradition not some uh, not some uh, uh, not something that's been dipped in bronze and put on the mantelpiece, but something that is vital. So to do that, we have to discover, we will, I, I, this is not a mandate, we will have to see if it happens. But when this happens, when will we discover that this story, in this case, the, the Dante's Commedia, that this story is my story? Sometimes that's quite a surprising thing to discover. But we have this problem in our time, which is that uh, we look back uh, on Dante's age with some uh, real reservations. He has a number of handicaps going for him, uh, not the least of which is that he lived a long time ago. And we, in our time, regard that as a severe handicap because uh, we have come to see that our problems as being so utterly... Uh, Contemporary, we probably, we may be. Well, I don't know. We may be the only uh, uh, generation that was ever totally preoccupied with its with its own that that ever insisted on referring to itself as being modern. Every generation is modern, you know, by its own standard. But somehow we've gotten into, we that is that's how we see ourselves. And so we look back over these years and see this person writing in this benighted age. Uh, and, uh, we are less likely to go along. We have substitute, Dante had, Dante lived in an, if we live in a technological age, Dante lived in an ecclesiological age. That is to say, he lived in an age in which it was the church and the, and the mythos that the church, uh, provided, uh, that was the dominant uh, pattern for organizing human imagination, and we have pretty much traded in our uh, mythos for a for a techne or technos, and live in this other kind of uh, a, a social environment made as coherent as we can make it by something other than a, a mythos. Uh, and so we we disenfranchise these older cultural elements because they don't seem to share our fundamental uh, experience. Um, But I want to quote a little poem of uh, Yeats uh, to the effect that technical superiority uh, does not make the story of the fall in the book of Genesis irrelevant to our time. You know, in the story of the fall, uh, Adam Falls asleep and is, the, the rib is taken out of his side and from the rib is fashioned Eve, and then Eve is uh, f- succumbs to the temptations of of the serpent. Uh, well, Yeats writes a little poem. Uh, it, it's it's in line with that thing that Aldous Suckley said about uh, about. Uh, uh, the decline of religion made necessary to invent the steam engine. Um, anyway, Yeats writes a little poem, which this tiny little thing goes like this. Locke, he's talking about John Locke, the English Enlightenment philosopher. Locke sank into a swoon. Uh, this is a great line all by itself because uh, Locke would have been the last person to know this. Uh, Locke was absolutely convinced, as were his contemporaries, that he was finally coming out of the swoon. That he was leaving all that superstition and mystification and silliness behind, and he was getting down to the empirical facts, thank you, uh, but Yeats you know sees things differently, so he starts out this little poem: Locke sank into a swoon. the garden died. God took the spinning jenny out of his side. <laughs> And the poem ends there. The invocation is the story of the fall all over again, only cornier. Well, uh, I want to massage a little bit more this distinction between the two ages um, and, and to admit that there is a blurred line between the medieval age and ours. Uh, you know, Carl Jung in that 1958 uh, interview with uh, John Freeman in the BBC interview, Jung refers to his parents as being uh, the last members of the medieval age. He says they lived in the late the late medieval period. Uh, Jung was born in 1875, so so uh, it creeps, you know, it lingers in. Well, perhaps it is that lingering that. Uh, that uh, 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 Henry Adams talks about. Henry Adams was a historian who um, in his autobiography uh, tells about a moment in where at which he stood, if you will, on the seam, or as close to the seam as we can find, I think, the seam separating the age we live in, the age of technos, and the age that we had that we were leaving behind the age of the mythos, and he stands um, at that scene and talks about it. He's at the 19 uh, excuse me 1893 Chicago World's Fair, where the big item was uh, the dynamo that was generating electricity, and everybody had come to this World's Fair to look at this marvel this huge dynamo swirling and outcoming electricity to do all kinds of little interesting things. And Henry Adams is in the room where these dynamos are humming along and he's awed by it. And he begins to muse at what it means. And I just take a few excerpts from his his comments. On one side, at the Louvre and at Scherz, was the highest energy ever known to man. The creator of four-fifths of his noblest art, exercising vastly more attraction over the human mind than all the steam engines and dynamos ever dreamed of. And yet this energy was unknown to the American mind. Symbol or energy, the Virgin had acted as the greatest source the western world had ever excuse me the greatest force the western world had ever felt and had drawn man's activities to herself more strongly than any other power natural or supernatural had ever done the historian's business was to follow the track of the energy to find where it came from and where it went only with the instinct of despair Could one force oneself into this old thicket of ignorance after having been repulsed a score of entrances more promising and more popular? In each, excuse me, in such labyrinths, the staff is a force almost more necessary than legs. The pen becomes a sort of blind man's dog to keep him from falling into the gutters. And so Henry Adams, at the exciting threshold of a new age of technological mastery, curious as a historian to find out what is it that really moves us, turns around and heads back into what he calls that old thicket of ignorance and spends his next years writing his major Contribution to Us, which is a, a book on uh, uh, Mont-Saint-Michel and Sharp. He goes back to try to understand primarily that energy that built the cathedral and to wonder where it's gone, in what way it's been sublimated in our age, and whether or not it will reappear. Yeah, I think it's showing... Very interesting signs of reappearing, by the way. Well, what Dante had abundantly, which we have only very poorly, is an interpretive paradigm. A richly complex doctrinal scheme of things. In the imaginative terms of which he could not only try to overcome his disillusionment, but only in terms of which could he fully experience the disillusionment in the first place. He had a cosmology or a mythos that gave him access to his own experience. Now, that seems odd. We tend to think that we can just have access to our own experience just straight away. Uh, But it turns out it's not really like that. Every experience is, in part, an interpretation of itself. And if we don't have some interpretive paradigm, we may have an experience and either not fully have it or not have any sense of its significance or where where it belongs in the order of things. Now, we may have all kinds of things to say doctrinally about Dante's mythos, but the point is he had one that stood him in good stead when it came to having... The experience, the deeper experience of his own life. The only background mythos that even remotely resembles Dante that exists in our time is evolution, and uh, it is in many ways an exciting one. In many ways, um, it, it does. How it it, it it you may have noticed by reading the headlines? It's not a universally shared one. Um, but it has some interesting things going for it, but it has none of the complexity and paradox that uh, that the one Dante had. Um, And it has one, some would feel, fatal flaw, and that is it leads us right back into the same kind of arrogance that is our fundamental problem to begin with namely we're living in this latter day and since evolution is a progressive thing we therefore are on the top of the heap so it contributes to the very to the very arrogance that it ought to be that a, that a genuine mythos ought to be undercutting uh the french uh Writer and, and mystic uh, Simon Weil, hearkening to the, the allegory of the cave, Plato's allegory of the cave, says to come out of the cave means to cease to make the future our objective. Now that is a tough one. To come out of the cave means to cease to make the future our objective. So if what we have instead of Dante's mythology is evolution, it has that one fatal flaw. Dante's interpretive method is unquestionably out of sync with our time. Uh, it doesn't jive with contemporary sensibilities. And some who have learned to revere his poem have worked feverishly to translate its mythic presuppositions into the into more familiar psychological and sociological commonplaces but in doing so they robbed the poem of its real value for us. the fact that the poem is irrelevant to the things that we ordinarily give our attention to is exactly what makes it relevant to our condition if you see what I mean. If we made it more relevant, it would be less relevant. We need to have something break in from outside that doesn't conform to our, to, to, to things that are familiar with us. And so we may occasionally, as we go through it, try to, try to uh, set up some echo structures with things that we're fam- familiar with psychological things, more contemporary theological things or or cultural things or whatever. Uh, but we don't want to rob it of its of, of its alien status, because we need that. We want to have Dante and his poem represent something strange enough to be truly provocative, the way the leech gatherer was strange for Wordsworth and the way that the old blind man is strange for Rilke uh, in this poem. That blind man standing by the parapet, gray as some nameless empire's boundary stone, is he perhaps that something unbeknown to which the planetary clock is set, the silent center of the starry ways, for all around him strives and struts and strays. I love that line. For all around him strives and struts and strays. He keeps his movelessly inerrant station where manifold perplexing crossways go, a somber entrance to the world below among a superficial generation. And if we grab him up by the shoulders and make him one of the boys, he won't do us a bit of good. He needs to be coming from some other dimension, the way Dante's poem is. But we're not, we try not to make it so contemporary that it ceases to be of any vi- contemporary value for it. The story rests on two, on really what you might call the, using a, one of Goethe's terms, the Ur-Myth, the, the, the primordial myth, uh, which in the Judeo-Christian tradition is the Exodus story. The central driving myth in the Judeo-Christian tradition is the Exodus story. Uh, for Dante, there are two versions of that. Dante is not only a, a product of the Judeo-Christian tradition. He relies not only on the Hebrew uh, roots but also on the on the classical or on the pagan one so there is a parallel to the to the Exodus story that Dante relies on and of course it is the story of Indian Aeneid, and it has very striking parallels to the story of the Exodus the Exodus leaves Egypt uh, wanders in the wilderness finally comes into the promised land to struggle against the Canaanites in order to establish the holy city. The Trojans leave Troy in flames, uh, wander on the surface of a, of a tempestuous sea, land in Italy, struggle with the native Rutulians, and finally lay the foundations for Rome. Striking parallel. Two versions of, of what Goethe might call the Ur myth of human transformation. And Dante relies on these, and even in this, this, these first two cantos, he will hearken to Paul as the, as the, 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 the Christian church began to see it as the new, itself as the new Israel, and Dante understands Paul as the founder of Christianity and uh aeneas is the founder of rome uh so he begins to hearken to these two versions of the myth and he places his his story uh bases his story on that same redemptive pattern so it's a story we know about but uh and dante knew about it and uh, if he knew about it why did he bother to tell another one it seemed to be the most the most uh, uh, reliable, survivable story. Why tell another one? Uh, which reminds me of a story. <laughs> There's a Hasidic story about a woman who could not uh, bear a child. Uh, which, of course, is again speaking of primordial myths. That's that isn't. Uh, in the Hebrew literature it's the, it's the symbolic of ever so much so we're not just talking here about a a particular woman who but we're talking about this spiritual condition called barrenness well anyway she couldn't bear a child so she a a famous rabbi was coming to town this is in i don't know lithuania or someplace famous rabbi is coming to town and she goes to find him and she sees him and she says, explains to him, she says, Rabbi, I have not been able to bear a child. What shall I do? And is there any, you know. And the rabbi says to her, that reminds me of a story. (laughs) He said, my mother couldn't bear children. And the great Hasidic rabbi, the Balshem Tov, came to town. My mother went to see him. And when she got to where he was staying, he had already gone to the next village. So she followed him to the next village. And when she got to the next village, he'd already left. And she went to the next village, and he had gone. And she went to the next village, and on and on, until finally she found him. And she met with him, and she said, I, I'm barren, I can't have children, what shall I do? And he said to her, Can you give a gift? Can you make an offering? She said, I have nothing of value except this precious cape, this katinka that my mother gave me. I could give that. And the Balsham Tov says, that will be fine. And so she returned uh, to give the cape to the temple. She goes back from village to village to village. The rabbi is telling this story and he says to the woman, And she got back home, and nine months later, I was born, the rabbi said. So the woman he's telling the story to says, Aha, I too have a katinka. And the rabbi says, It won't do. You heard the story, and my mother had no story to go by. It's one of the things about stories is that they are always true. You notice the rabbi bothered to tell it. It's not as though stories aren't going to do anybody any good. You need to know the story. We need to know the story. Dante needed to know the story, the Exodus story, the, the Aeneid story. Uh, and we need to know the, those stories and Dante's story. But the story will only do us any good If at some level of our being, we know that we don't have a story, some kind of paradox involved in it, so that we have to be, we have the map in our lap and are lost. We have to be both of those things. Uh, if we, if we grab the story up and, uh, secure ourselves in the story so much that we cannot feel our lostness, then, we, then the story's not going to do us any good. So how to interpret... Uh, by the way, uh, Dante had uh, the Aeneid in hand. And it was only when he was lost that he really found that it was the story he could rely on. So he went around, both having and not having a story. How do we interpret the poem? I won't just say this at the outset because uh, we will, with this, as we have with other things, take some take some liberties in interpreting it. Uh, but I want to remind you, uh, in to use the legal terms, we have any lawyers here. Uh, this this uh, this poem is in the public domain. Uh, it is not the it is not uh, in the possession of uh, any um, official interpreters. And uh, the standard way of interpreting it is to uh, ask, what did Dante mean? And that can be very helpful. But it is almost a definition of art, that art means more than the artist meant it to me. And that's part of the mystery of art. Um, so this poem, we will, and this poem will mean, for our purposes, it means the deepest and most moving thing we can imagine it meaning. And occasionally, we want to find out what Dante meant, so as to keep ourselves grounded, uh, so as a kind of corrective, so that we don't get too far away from. But we're not going to be stuck with this question of what did he mean by that. What does it mean to me? And then let's explore that. So, so just we just have at it in that way. And in, what, in some way, Dante invited us to have at it. In a letter, an important letter to one of his patrons, uh, a man named Con Con Grande. Dante uh, alludes to his technique and what he has done with the poem, and he says, "I have written a poem that is in, that is available for interpretation at four levels simultaneously." This is a little bit like uh, like saying you have juggled twelve balls in the air while you know. I mean, but he says each each of these levels are available, and he called them the literal, the moral, the allegorical and the anagogical, anagogical meaning the mystical. And he gave an example uh, in his letter to Congon Grande, and he said he took the phrase, Israel went out of Egypt. Interesting that he took that phrase. That's, of course, the Ur myth we're talking about. And he says, literally, it means Israel escaped Egypt. Morally, it means... The conversion of a soul from sinful life. Analogically, it means redemption through Christian conversion. And mystically, anagogically, it means the movement of a life from temporal to eternal states of being. So that, he says, in this poem, when you come upon a simple phrase like that, know, he said, that it's available for any of those levels. And sort of if the shoe fits, wear it. Just find, find whichever one you need to find at any given place in the poem and that it'll be there for you. Uh, Henry Osborne Taylor referring to this this uh, One of the things that many people have commented on about this poem is that it is so uh, multifaceted in that way. Taylor says, speaking of Dante, in his mind so worked the genius of symbolism. Every fact's apparent meaning was closed with the significance of other modes of truth. So just echo structures and uh, internal references and... Uh, all of that but these these four levels are not equally significant they are uh, they uh, grow in significance so that the anagogical or the mystical is the most significant and we will not stay at that level in our interpretation at all but we will perhaps emphasize it occasionally in the special way that it requires emphasis the literal and the moral level particularly in the inferno tend to uh, tend to preempt the deeper level and so we will have to uh, make an effort to get that deeper level to sound for us and the way that I've we've done this in the past and the way that I propose to do it here at least occasionally is something that we have talked about uh, referred to in the past as liturgical exposure that is to say I mean, we can't all break into hymn uh, or start, uh, you know, start throwing the the uh, incense around or whatever. Uh, but liturgical exposure would be to come upon a passage where we, in some way, uh, create a refrain. Uh, we re- we create and we intone a passage, and we try to have it reverberate. For us at a deeper level and see if by repeating it several times we can get it to drop into that deeper significance well it's a poem about conversion there are three things to mention here it begins with disillusionment which uh, is not altogether bad if you're if you're caught up in an illusion uh, then a dose of disillusionment is a is exactly what's prescribed secondly it's divided into three phases hell purgatory and paradise representing in the most general sense the recognition of sin and its consequences the uh, renunciation of that impulse or probably better a reorientation of our of our impulses in the purgatorio and a gradual learning to live in the divine presence in the Paradiso. Now, this uh, tripartite breakdown of the of the mystical journey is almost unanimously uh, consented to or, uh, or or affirmed by in a mystical tradition. There are a number of instances of this that could be uh, that we could uh, use to to echo. Uh, Dante's breakdown. Uh, but one aspect of it I, I did want to bring. Uh, Jacob Bima, the, the uh, German mystic, wrote, We are to understand reality as a threefold being or three worlds in one another. I, I, that's what I want to emphasize. In one another. Coterminous with one another. If one sees a man right... He may say, I see here three worlds standing. So that these three, we will experience them sequentially. And in many ways they are sequential. Uh, but in another way they are, they are, uh, layers of our being. And one never quite does away with one. And the third thing about, uh, this conversion story is that it introduces the pilgrim and the reader to a uh, a, a series of wrenching paradoxes uh, culminating in uh, the realization that the world is upside down. And so the word conversion means to turn around. We in our time say, boy, that really turned me around. Well, that's what a conversion is, to turn around. Dante's might use the imagery, as a matter of fact, he does use the imagery the other way. We turn the world upside down. Um, but we suddenly realize that we've been living in a world that's either backwards or upside down. And we have to, I think of those astronauts who have to go up and try to live without gravity, you know, which way is down, which way is up um, without that, well, in some ways, that same, as we'll find out at the end of the Inferno, that same kind of reorientation of our sensibilities is what Dante is getting at. So I wanted to... You think we're never going to get to Dante, I know, but I wanted to read one one more Rumi poem before... Uh, well, a couple more things here, but Rumi poem called The Question. One dervish to... A, Rumi's of a uh, Persian poet. One dervish to another. What was your vision of God's presence. I haven't seen anything, but for the sake of conversation, I'll tell you a story. God's presence is there in front of me, a fire on the left, a lovely stream on the right. One group walks towards the fire, into the fire, another toward the sweet flowing water. No one knows which are blessed and which not. Whoever walks into the fire appears suddenly in the stream. A head goes under on the water surface. That head pokes out of the fire. Most people guard against going into the fire and so end up in it. Those who love the water of pleasure make it their devotion and are cheated with this reversal. The trickery goes further. The voice of the fire tells the truth, saying, I am not the fire. I am fountainhead. Come into me. And don't mind the sparks. If you are a friend of God, fire is your water. You should wish to have a hundred thousand sets of moth wings so you could burn them away one set a night. The moth sees light and goes into the fire. You should see fire and go into the light. Fire is what God is, excuse me, fire is what of God is world consuming, water world protecting. Somehow each gives the appearance of the other. To these eyes you have now, what looks like water burns. What looks like fire is a great relief to be inside of. Was that same kind of strangeness in the world that Dante is going to be exploring? It is a mystical uh, transformation that's, part of this so I wanted to do a few more little things I'm getting long-winded on this introduction Evelyn Underhill who did a study of mysticism speaks of the beginning process of the mystical uh, transformation called conversion and she says the self awakes to new needs is cured of its belief in sham values and distinguishes between real and unreal objects of desire. That craving for more life and more love, which lies at the very heart of our selfhood, here slips from the charmed circle of the senses into the wider air. When this happens abruptly, it is called conversion. But often it comes about without observation. Here the essentials are a desire, and a disillusionment sufficiently strong to overcome our natural sloth, our primitive horror of change. The two ingredients are a desire and a disillusionment. Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching says, Always rid yourself of desires in order to observe its secrets, but always allow yourself to have desire in order to observe its manifestations. Underhill says desire and disillusionment. These, by the way, are two things that Dante never loses touch with. That's what makes his poem so exciting. Uh, Dante is, if I may use a computer lingo here, Dante is user-friendly. Just to say that... uh, he not only provides us with the poem but he teaches us how to read it teaches us how to experience it along the way he anticipates our dilemma and he tries to help us out of it our dilemma is that we don't know how to be lost we uh we have so we have so structured our lives so as to avoid fully experiencing our lostness uh, that we're simply not available for transformation Uh, you know robert frost in that poem directive says uh, says to his reader are you lost enough to find yourself he actually says i'm going he actually said i'm going to i'm going to make you lost enough to find yourself because you have to be lost enough to find yourself well he he begins by instructing us on the art of being lost And then he shows us, mirrors for us, what our response is likely to be. And he shows us how mistaken it is in the first instance. And then he shows us how how sort of haltingly we take on a new guide. And he shows us by analogy to his own existence. He took on Virgil, and it took a while for him to take Virgil on. And it's going to take us a while to take him on. Uh, But he provides a little parable for us by telling the story about himself. So let's, uh, with great fear and trembling, uh, take on these first two or three lines. It must be said now, Dante, uh, since we last saw him in the the, uh, La Vita Nuova, has spent his life in philosophy and politics and has done some reasonably impressive things in both those areas. Um... probably the most impressive thing in the political area is that he got himself exiled from Florence uh but in any case he has come to regard these years of emphasizing philosophy and politics as having been both <clears throat> it's that it, it's it's what uh who is it? I guess it's Houston Smith says there comes a moment when you realize two things that number one, that my whole life has been misdirected, and number two, that everything is as it should be. Uh, well, Dante reaches a certain point where he realizes that this these flirtations with philosophy and politics have been an avoidance of of the task that has laid on him by life. And he's writing this, he begins this poem when he's in his late forties, uh, in, oh say, 1312, something like that, 1313. But he places it on Holy Thursday. It takes place, uh, the, it takes, takes place Easter week of the year 1300. And it's appropriate because in that year Dante was 35. And the psalmist says we have uh, our, our three score and ten. 35 is half of that. It's interesting. Jung came to the same conclusion about the midlife. So we can start out with this now hackneyed notion of the midlife crisis. Well, it won't be hackneyed when Dante gets finished with it. And so he begins his spiritual autobiography. When I had journeyed half our life's way, I found myself within a shadowed forest, for I had lost the path that does not stray. And then he's going to describe a kind of moral landscape, existential landscape. But he said, when I had journeyed half our life's way, notice that in the very first line, we are given the hint that this is, though it is a story of Dante, though it is an autobiographical in some ways story, in some ways it's Dante the Pilgrim and Dante the Poet, but it is really our story. Otherwise, he'd keep it to himself. When I had journeyed half our life's way, I found myself within a shadowed forest, for I had lost the path that does not stray. Now, here's a little mantra that uh, homework is to repeat this mantra about, uh, what should we say, two or three hundred times between now and next week. mantra is this. I found myself lost. I found myself lost. I found myself lost. How else? How else? You know the old story of the of the drunk who's searching who's out in front of the bar looking for his car keys? And the guy comes out and says, what are you doing? I'm looking for my car keys. He says, he's in the gut. Go- oh, you dropped your car keys here? No, he said, I dropped them over there, but the street light's here. <laughs> I, or, the, or the, you know, the, we all came to California to find ourselves, but that's not where we lost ourselves. is it? <laughs> well, anyway... I found myself lost. There's a great mystery to that, see. If we could allow ourselves to feel that lostness, we could begin the process of finding ourselves. And he talks about how he talks about this the how loathsome this experience was this dark wood but he says it was good came of it so he said I'm going to tell you the story was a was a hard one but a, good came of it so I want to tell you the story and he says I cannot this is line 10 I cannot clearly say how I had entered the wood I was so full of sleep just at the point where I abandoned the true path. I don't even know how I got here. I I got here by being asleep at the wheel. I just kind of went along with what was happening and woke up and realized that, as uh, Rethke says in that poem, which I is I? Will the real Dante please stand up? I don't even know how I got here. I was just going along with the program, but it wasn't my program. But when I'd reached the bottom of the hill, it rose among the boundary of the valley that had harassed my heart with so much fear. And then he sees behind this little hill the sun coming up. And he feels a little better he says here, the uh, Menelbaum translation, that uh, it was somewhat quieted, Umpoco. felt a little bit better when he saw the sun coming up behind that hill. Now, that hill is a hint of the Purgatorial Mountain, but it's a little bit like a joke. It's a hint of the Purgatorial Mountain, but it is a little bit like a joke. It's just a little hill with the sun coming up behind it. In a sense, he sees the light. He's in the dark wood, and then he sees the light. Now, the Neoplatonists thought that that was what conversion was all about, to see the light. Well, Dante sees the light, 17 lines into a 13,000 line poem. <laughs> so let's put that in perspective. And he says his spirit was still fugitive. And he tried to climb the hill. The last line on that page, my foot, excuse me, my firm foot always was the one below, has been the subject of uh, elaborate interpretive scrutiny. Nobody knows what to make of that. Charty says it means he was moving really fast up that hill. Um, other people say it was, meant he was not getting anywhere at all. Other people feel it was he was walking in circles. Other people feel that uh, he was limping around, not going anywhere. But whatever it means, it is that he didn't make much progress up the hill. But what progress he did make was thwarted by the appearance of these three beasts. And they, too, are widely interpreted, the leopard, the lion, and the she-wolf. And uh, they are, they can be interpreted on all four of those levels that we talked about. Uh, but instead of us interpreting them, uh, we might best just realize that they are whatever they are, Whatever they are for you or for me, there's there are at least three of them there, and uh, at least one of them has got what it takes to get us back down the hill, and thank God for that, because well, that's the wrong direction to go anyway. These creatures perhaps are here because of the fundamental sin of pride, thinking I can climb up that little hill, that I can... Achieve conversion by an act of will. Particularly when my will is, is, is so, uh, so hampered with delusional, uh, stuff. So, Dante backs down the hill, the she-wolf snarling all the while, and he says, Line 53, I abandoned hope of ever climbing up that mountain slope. And then, of course, the nickel drops. I abandoned hope of ever climbing up the mountain slope. Now, he's going to refer to Paul and Aeneas, and both Paul and Aeneas... Have something of that same experience. In the letter to the Romans, Paul says, The good that I would do, I do not, but the evil which I would not do, that I do. He says, I am helpless to achieve this conversion experience on my own. And Aeneas, in one of the most, I think, meaningful parts of the Aeneid, into Book 5, uh, the, the pilot of Aeneas' ship, Polyneurus, his friend and, and the pilot of his ship, the gods have declared that he must be cast into the sea. And he, like a good pilot, like the good ego, is clinging to the, to the tiller, guiding the ship. Clinging to it so tightly that when the gods try to toss him into the, into the sea, it snaps off the, the steering rod. So not only does the pilot fall into the sea, but the ability to steer the ship with any coherence does likewise. Psychologically, you see that moment. And the po- book five ends with Aeneas feeling his ship adrift and taking what's left of the tiller himself and trying to steer it. And book six opens with Aeneas letting his arms fall slack and letting the the sea and the wind take him where he needs to go. Nothing nothing is more of an affront to the American mind than that idea. There's a poem a little poem by William Stafford where he's American poet William Stafford where he I think, talks of a similar moment in his life. He says, I want to be as afraid as the teeth are big. I want to be as dumb as the wise are wrong. I'd just as soon be pushed by events to where I belong. See? He just lets that go. St. John of the Cross said, if a person would be sure of his road, he must close his eyes and walk in the dark. Well, something of that here. Abandoned hope of ever climbing that mountain slope. And then he sees Virgil. He sees Virgil at that moment. That, that old thing about when the student's ready, the teacher appear. At that moment, not when he's, he's been, not when he's sitting with his feet propped up in Florence as one of the, as one of the important people of the city and he's flipping through his Virgil, reading and thinking what a marvelous poet. That was preparation. But it's at the moment when he gives up hope in his exile and in his despair that he finds that Virgil really is reliable. So he sees this figure. He doesn't know who it is at first. And he doesn't bother to ask who it is at first. The first thing he says is, Miserere. Have mercy on me. Have pity on me. And he didn't know if it he says, Are you a shade or a man? And Virgil explains to him. He gives him the details that lets Dante know that this is Virgil. He says, I was a poet. And I sang of the righteous son of Anchises who had come from Troy when flames destroyed the pride of Ilium. Now that's a little hint of what's going to happen. The flames are going to have to destroy the pride. So let's go to hell, Dante. The the flames are going to destroy the pride. And that's what makes Rome possible. See the Ur myth there? Just like the, just as the Red Sea destroyed the Egyptians and made the promised land a possibility. The flames are going to destroy the pride. And now, you see, Dante begins to understand Virgil for the first time in his life. There's a poem by Robert Browning. I heard a voice perchance I heard long ago, but all too low, so that scarce a care that it stirred if the voice were real or no. I heard it in my youth when first the waters of my life outburst but now their stream ebbs faint. I hear that voice still low but fatal clear. And Dante says may my long study and intense love that made me search your volume serve me now. You know the story. And suddenly you realize you're right in it. And Dante says, help me. That's the other, uh, that's the other mantra that, to go along with. I found myself lost. And the other one is, "Help me." Two of the hardest words to, in the world to say. And one of the reasons we don't like to say them is we like little children, you know, walking home in the dark. And we hear these. We hear. We think we hear something behind us, and we try not to run because we know if we if we take two steps running, we'll just panic. And we really are children and fragile and and uh, frightened and unsure beneath all our parent sureness. You know. And we all know that if we ever with meaning said the words, help me, the whole facade might fall right into the street. And uh, uh, Virgil obliges by saying, We're not going up and out. We're going down and in. You are trying to get up this little hill? You're going the wrong direction. We all want to solve it by going up that little hill, don't we? I mean, that's the thing. We all want to solve it by going up that little hill. We begin to experience that disorientation. And inevitably, there's a little hill that pops up with a little glow of sunrise behind it, and we start charging up that hill. Ah, ha, ah, this'll be it. That's the solution. Virgil says, down. You want to go up? Go down. Now, if that, if you, if you begin to hear a hint at this point that the world is wrong side up, so much the better. You want to go up? Let's go down.